Please stand for the reading of God's word. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, was in a furious rage, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time which he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be consoled because they were no more. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. genocide? This is a valid question, and I want to affirm your question and honor that. We are closing out our Christmas time Advent series as we are still closing out what is called Christmas Tide, the time of Jesus' coming. We are finishing out this series that we've been doing in these early chapters of the book of Matthew that we've been calling The Return of the King, focusing on how Matthew's gospel reveals to us this long-awaited Savior, the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, which is the word that's translated as Christ, the anointed one, who would come to be the, the long-awaited ruler, defender, provider for his people and bring the change both in them and the world around them that they have been longing for. Well, last week, we skipped this passage to have more of a Merry Christmas. This week, however, we are circling back to the passage, and I think some ways that will be helpful for us as we look towards the new year, and we'll get into that. But last week, we looked at the early life of this king and his family, to see the way that, that this king enters into the darkness with us. He lets his life be changed by the problems of the world. And he shows us he's a king that we can trust in the dark, because he's actually already there in it with us. And this week, in closing our series, we're looking at this passage, which is, in no uncertain terms, a terrible, tragic, awful moment. And he says it comes about because this new king, Jesus, was perceived as an existential threat to the current king, Herod. What I want to see in this incident is what it shows us about what we do when we face losses, when we don't have control. And how Jesus is a king who, despite all that, brings greater resolution to our losses than we could through any of the control that we have. I want to do that by looking at just two things, Herod's rage and Rachel's weeping. Before we do that, I want to invite you to pray with me. Let's ask God to fill up our hearts and our time. Now we've been speaking to you and you've been speaking to us, and now we pause to hear in an extended way from your word. This is a difficult passage. There are difficult things that happen in our world. There are difficult things that are happening right now. 
We know that you are not immune to these things. You are not unaffected by them. You are not uncaring that you see them. Your heart is broken by them. And you and your son have done something to begin changing this, to undo all the evil that is in our world. So we pray that in any of the ways that any of us are, are, are grieving things that have happened, things that will happen, whether personal or global, that, that you would enter in with us. That you would give us a sense that you are not far off, but that you are, in fact, the God of Christmas, Emmanuel, God with us in the midst of these things. And so this morning, as we pause to consider these dark and difficult things, would you be Emmanuel? Would you be God with us? That we might take you into this new year with us. And that you would be our comforter and our strength. And the one who restores what is lost. In your name, by your spirit, we pray. Well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to go back through them just a little bit. If you don't, there should be one that looks like this in the pew in front of you. And you can feel free to follow along with us there or just listen along as the church has always done. Well, we'll start by talking about Herod's rage. And this passage is tying back to the earlier parts of chapter 2, if you were to look back there, to the visit of the Magi, who a few weeks back we said were this professional elite class of advisors to kings that helped them make meaning of what was going on in the world. And this, this professional class, this known class of people, had shown up in Jerusalem, announced that this great king who was connected to stars even had shown up and was going to bring great changes. And this shook Herod and all Jerusalem with him. Herod, as we will talk a little bit more, was certainly someone who did not suffer any threats to his rule. And this new king, a king that would be so great that he would be seen as having a connection to the cosmos, would be something he would certainly perceive as a threat. And in those early verses, he goes into damage control mode. He tried subtly to manipulate the Magi, his professional class, to find this new king for him and to bring a report back so he, presumably, could go and have this young king killed. He had a habit, as we talked about a few weeks ago, of killing rivals and their families to establish his power and dominance. But the Magi are warned in a dream, verse 12, not to go back to Herod, and they depart another way back to their country, and they don't come back and tell them the location that they found. This is where our passage picks back up, and Herod, in verse 16, becomes furious or greatly enraged when he realizes that actually the Magi aren't coming back. They've taken too long. They should have been back by now. Bethlehem is not that far. I should have heard from them. And in his rage at not having the information that he hoped to have that would lead him to a more secure future, he thought, he escalates his violence. He doubles down on control and holding on to power. He hasn't tried to just send a few people now to go and find out, to see where did the Magi go, where did they look, they would have been recognizable, especially in a small town. He could have done that. He could have sent a small group of people, but he flips out. He just goes into rage and instead orders that all the male children under the age of two in Bethlehem and the surrounding area be killed. Now, there's no other way to understand this except that he institutes a regional genocide. That's what this is. It's brutal. It's horrific. Uh, it calls to mind other genocides in Scripture, like Pharaoh's similar attempted genocide on the children of Israel in Exodus chapter 1, as well as other genocides that we've seen in the world throughout time, even in the past 150, 20 years. Even. 
And even though we see these kinds of things in history, we see them in our world, we might balk at the idea of this being true. It just, in some way, may feel like that's just too much to believe. That's just too brutal that anyone would do something like that. It's intentional and indiscriminate killing of children, of toddlers even. It's by all standards of atrocity. Now, sadly, though, as one commentator, R.T. France, points out, he says, quote, on the scale of atrocities known to have been perpetrated by Herod during his later years, this would register very low. This is not even as bad as it got with Herod when he was king. This is not the worst of the worst for him, if you can imagine that. This registers low on the scale of terrible things that he did, meaning for as brutal as this is, it's not even as bad as it got. This is not the worst thing that he conceived of. It's not the grossest thing that he had ever done. We know that from external sources. So based on what we know about Herod, this seems tragically possible, tragically real, even not that hard to believe based on the things that he has done. So if this is real, if this did happen, if it is highly possible, what do we make of this? Apart from injustice and the brutality of it, and we'll talk about that in the next point, this move by Herod gives the impression, if we think about him in relationship to this new king, and we talked about the king in relationship to the powers around him and how he makes those powers move, it gives the impression of this lesser, desperate power taking a swipe at a much greater power. It portrays Herod for all of his brutality, for all of his, his strength and influence as someone who is desperate and actually weak, someone that's pretty frantic and very concerned. He's unable to make the Magi give him the information that he wants. He doesn't have control of them. He is, as chapter 2, verses 13 and 15 highlight when Jesus escapes, even unable to hit the target that he's aiming for. As he tries to wipe out this one person by wiping out everyone, and he misses the exact thing that he's trying to do. He doesn't even kill his rival with all this brutality. He is inept at abusing power. He's incompetent. So what the passage seems to show. And so for all his efforts to control his world, even through hostility and violence and manipulation, here it comes up against the reality that control, even for people as powerful as him, is ultimately an illusion. That control is not something that we actually have in this life. For all you try, for all you have at your disposal, for as advanced as we are technologically, control is not something that you have in this life. Aaron shows us that there are greater powers than you in the world. That was not welcome news for Aaron. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's not welcome news for us either as modern people. We don't like the idea that we are not in control. We in the West are a hyper-individualist culture. I decide what is best for me. We do not like when anyone else decides something for us. We don't like the idea of not being in control. Technology only makes this worse. We expect things to get here faster. We expect them to work right away. We are frustrated when it isn't fixed the same day, the next day, when we don't have a replacement on the way, when Amazon two-day shipping becomes three-day shipping. Oh. 
just. Technology makes it worse. We assume we have control that because I press order now, it will arrive when I said in the condition that it should. We tend to think here in the West in 2023 that with enough effort and resources, we can handle whatever comes up. That is essentially the narrative of our culture, that if you try hard enough, you're smart enough, you're connected enough, you have enough money, you can control what comes your way. But this passage... And just life itself, if we are looking back at your year, if you just went back through, if you have Amazon orders and saw how many of them were on time, how many of them were what you wanted, how many of them are broken already, right? Life itself tells us, Herod shows us, that you really can't control, that things are not in your control. True control is outside our grasp, even when we are deeply powerful people. That like it or not, at times we will not have enough power to avoid things that we expect will hurt us, will take things from us, or will disappoint us. We'll experience loss in this life, and we will have to face a world that Herod is having to face, which is bigger than you. It extends beyond your grasp. It doesn't answer to you at the end of the day, no matter how much you rage or scream or pump your fist in the air. And so I think one of the key questions that that Herod's response to this uncontrolled situation brings up for us is that in this coming year, when losses or even anticipated losses come our way, when things happen that we don't want to happen or that we think might happen if we don't do this, that, and three other things, if we might lose some of our comfort, if we might lose some of our standing with our friends, some of our approval at work, or at home, some of our credibility, some of our influence, some of our feeling like we're good people, feeling like we are, of course, doing the right things, that we are in good standing with those who we want to be thought well of, some of our stability even and predictability, that when when anticipated losses or actual losses come, will we respond like Herod and wrap ourselves up in the warm, self-assuring blanket of rage and avoidance? doing everything in our power to deny the fact that we are not in control, ending up hurting others with our words or our actions, putting others down, deceiving them, manipulating them. We do all that so that we don't have to face the fact that we are not in control and something might happen that hurts. That's what Herod is doing. He doesn't want to face the fact that there might be someone greater than him that would take away his power, his influence, his connections, his standing. He doesn't want to face that. And he is doing whatever he can to make sure he doesn't face that, even if it hurts other people. Will we be like that? Or will we accept losses and face the reality that we are not the greatest power in our world, that we are not in control, that everything doesn't answer to us, even sadly, if that means some pain comes our way. The challenge to Herod in Matthew chapter 2 and for us as well is to accept that there are things that we can't control, that there is a greater king than us, that it's not you. And that at times we won't get to decide what happens. At times in this coming year, this is a spoiler alert for 2024, you won't get to decide what happens. 
Something will come that you don't have a choice in. And that's important for us to acknowledge because the whole premise of Christianity, which, which lines up with our lived reality, is that there is a greater power that you don't control. That is one of the basic tenets of Christianity, that there is a power that's greater than you that you don't control. It's not all up to you and me, even if we don't like that. Herod certainly didn't like that. So Christians in the room, are we living like God is not a greater power that's in control? Are we living really like we are in control, that God ought to orbit around us, that the way we see things is, of course, right and exhaustive and true and perfect for us? Are we going to acknowledge that we are not the greatest power in the room? Are we living like God isn't the God we say he is, that we just confessed he is? It's really easy to read the Apostles' Creed and to intellectually say, yep, I believe that. And very easy to walk out of these doors and to live functionally like none of that is true. Like God is not God, like I have to be in control, like he won't show up for me. Like I ought to have everything that I want my way, even for good reasons. Christians, are we living functionally like we don't believe in God? Or are we hearing the invitation of God to live like he is a greater power who wants to work for us? That he's for you even in the pain. That there are things you can't see that come out of that pain, which is also true of Jesus' death on the cross. That it certainly would not have looked at face value like that pain was going anywhere positive. It didn't look like that to his best friends. didn't look like that to his disciples, to his followers, to his family. It just looked like a dead end. They weren't in control. And certainly if it was up to them, you know Peter tried. If it was up to them, they would have done something different. But they weren't in control and they had to face a loss. But it was through that loss that God did something more. Will we live like we don't have to be in control? And God is actually a greater power than we are. The invitation for you this year is that despite what you can't control, the hurts that you will face, the pain that you will go through, the invitation is not to turn to rage and avoidance as comforts in the dark, as things that numb us to the reality that we're facing, that keep us from resolving our losses, keep us in these unhealthy patterns where we keep revolving around and around in avoidance with people, in hurting people, and running people over, and manipulating, and in avoiding. We turn away from those things when we're facing a loss of control and let God be the greater power in your life, even amidst those losses. I hope you will. I hope I will. I hope we will help each other in these things, that we'll turn to him away from the futility of trying to control a world that is just clearly bigger than us. And that brings us to Matthew's quotation of Jeremiah 31, 15, and the challenge of Rachel's weeping for our second point here, because Matthew looks back on the battle for control by Herod against this new rival king and the genocide it brings. And for some reason, it makes him think of Jeremiah 31, particularly Jeremiah 31, 15, and we'll get into why, but that passage says, a voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, it, it's a challenging, puzzling reference that Matthew makes here, and the commentaries even say this is the most challenging reference that he makes of all the Old Testament references. It's puzzling for a number of reasons. It's not a text you would clearly expect this Christ and King to come and fulfill. 
There's no obvious sort of on-its-face connection there. Matthew also doesn't resolve the quote for you. He just leaves us with the weeping and the pain of the genocide and says, this fulfills what God is talking about. Close, walk on. He doesn't say more. It's tough. It makes Jesus feel more challenging even than by forcing us to admit that we're not in control. Now he seems like a king that somehow fulfills promises through genocide. This seems terrible. But when we get into it, there is something deeper there. And there's even somewhat of how New Testament writers reference the Old Testament that's caught up in this. Often they will reference a whole section of scripture just by using one verse and it will link to other things in there. And we'll see that that's some of what Matthew is doing. But let's get into what, what is actually being talked about so we can see the deeper thing. Because Rachel who was the wife of Jacob, later named Israel, as another commentator, Grant Osborne, explains, was called in ancient times the figurative mother of God's people. She had been dead for thousands of years, even by the time that Jeremiah was writing, and certainly much longer here. So she is pictured as in her grave, uh, which many believe to be in the city of Ramah, which was the place when Israel was conquered by Babylon, deported, taken into exile. It was through Ramah that they were taken, marched away. Ramah was that sort of jumping off point into exile. So she's standing there, or in her grave, laying there, weeping by the road of exile for her children, Israel, as they are marched away from their home, having been conquered. It was a sad picture. Then, it's a sad picture in this passage. And on its face, it seems like maybe Matthew is using this as just an expression of grief, of lament on behalf of God's people and suffering under the brutality of Herod, who was not the king that was expected. It's maybe juxtaposed against how bad Herod was compared to how good Jesus is going to be that these two kings are put side by side. And Matthew is showing us that we, that we weep over waiting for a better king but it's not clear how that would be a fulfillment of promises or why that would be helpful for us aside from giving voice to our grief, which is important and scripture often does that. Until we look at the rest of Jeremiah 31 and how it speaks to Israel's exile under Babylonian captivity. And this is where Matthew gets into that sort of linking reference by just citing one verse. Because Jeremiah 31, along with chapter 30, is actually this whole section where God starts to speak to his people after many, many chapters of warning them, encouraging them to stop, to turn away from the terrible things that they were doing. And Israel got into some terrible things in ancient times. This is where God starts to say that despite what I have to do to lead you out of that, I am going to do some wonderful and gracious things for you. He starts making promises to restore them from the death that exile represented of their nation. He promises that despite their exile in Babylon, he would ultimately bring them back into a new, wide, beautiful, peaceful life, ultimately back to him. And this similar situation in our passage, God's people killed and driven away to other countries, that's exile. Here, God's people are killed, children in Bethlehem, and Jesus, the promised king, is driven away to another country, Egypt, for a time of exile. This calls to mind for Matthew this passage. God's people being driven away, being killed, taken off in exile, Jeremiah 31, 15, and the mother of God's people weeping over her children who have been taken away like this. And it's like the lights go on for Matthew when he thinks about this verse with all its parallels to this tragedy, 
because all that is sitting right in the middle of those promises of God to restore his people from another tragedy. Matthew sees that weeping, that expression of lament and grief sitting inside this greater context of promises to make all that come untrue. He sees that a greater version of the restoration God had promised for that tragedy has now arrived for Jesus, in Jesus, for for this tragedy and for so many more, that, that Jesus brings a greater response to Rachel's tears than anything else had. That Jesus gives even greater voice to the promises of verses 16 and 17 in Jeremiah 31, which are spoken to Rachel in her grief. Those verses, in summary, say, Keep your voice from weeping, Rachel, and your eyes from tears, for there is hope for your future. Your children shall come back to their own country. Matthew sees in Jesus Christ a king who doesn't just bring the living back from another country. He doesn't just say, well, these are the people that were left. I couldn't help those people, so I'm going to bring these people back. That's the best I can do, and it will be good for you. No, Jesus is someone who brings people back from the exile of death. Matthew sees a greater fulfillment than could have been envisioned at that time. He sees a solution to tears like those of the families in Bethlehem at that time, that would otherwise go unanswered by normal kings. Tears that would not be solved just by having people come back from another country. Tears that would not be solved because your child was gone. He sees a promise fulfilled in that because he sees Christ bringing a resurrection power to bear on all our tears by undoing the power of sin and death over his people on the cross, becoming himself an innocently slaughtered child of God so that he could fully cover our guilt as a guiltless one himself. He gets sent into exile, not just of another country for a year or so, but into the exile of death for us so that he might go there ahead of us to bring back all who were already lost, so that all the children might in fact be brought back. Matthew sees such a greater restoration of verses 16 and 17, those promises that the children would come back, that there is yet hope for a future. In the parallel of this tragedy, reaching back to that, he sees a greater king who has come to do so much more. Matthew sees that Jesus opens a way for people, even little ones taken far too early, to come home from a place that no one returns from. Matthew wants us to see that when you have Jesus, you have the power of the resurrection to wipe away every tear that you face. A power that gives you back what you lose and then some so that you don't have to fight for control on your own because with him, even genocide is ultimately only a scratch. Is something that he brushes off in a moment, in a second, when he brings the new heavens and the new earth. All of that gets pushed away like it was dust on a desk. Matthew seems to say, amen, through this reference to Jeremiah 31, take your best shot. Do your worst. Do everything you want to do. Take what you want from God's people. Christ is going to give it back. Jesus himself 
in the beating that led up to the cross, in the cross itself, seems to say, do whatever you want. Because in the end, I'm going to bring it all back. He is the king that you can look to in a world you can't control, full of losses that may even take your life. Because he is a king who brings you all the way back. No matter how many tears or how big the tears or how great the loss. So Matthew's invitation, my invitation to you is to look to him this year. More specifically, I want to encourage you as we come to a close by way of application to do two things to put this into effect in your life, to notice and to come back. First, I want to invite you just to notice where you are reacting to a threat of loss in your life. Where are you flexing your power against something that you don't want to have happen? You're talking louder, using more forceful words, you're even using physical force, you're making sure that you get your way. Where are you manipulating in response to something that you don't want to have happen. You're trying to use others to get what you want done. You can't talk to that person or they won't listen to you, so you're going to talk to two other people that you think will talk to them. You're going to triangulate the whole thing so that you can move and get done what you want done. Where are you deceiving? Deceiving yourself. Where are you deceiving others so that you can have what you want, so that you don't have to go without the thing that you would hope to have? These are all indicators of losses that we are facing, upping the temperature on the force that we use, manipulating and deceiving. If we are doing these things, there is something that we don't want to lose. My invitation to you is is not to say that we don't try to prevent bad things, but to invite us to notice where are we being controlled by attempts to avoid loss? Where are we unable to let go of control and say, I have done my best, I have given my effort, but apart from that, It's not in my hands. And I can be free to let it be in God's hands. I just invite you to just notice that. To just start noticing it. All you have to do is notice. Just write it down. Oh, I noticed it. Boom, done. Right? You will have completed sermon application point one. And you can give yourself a little surprise, clap, a little cookie, whatever feels right. Do that thing. But it's going to lead you noticing it to start to do other things. We have to start small by noticing it. But noticing will help you build an awareness that will drive you to what you really need to do in the face of loss, which is to come back to Jesus. We always turn to something in our losses. Usually it's to something like rage and avoidance, and we cuddle up in those things because they're comfortable and they're familiar, and they have saved us in the past from things we didn't want to face. But they're letting us down in the future. And so the invitation is to notice where are we grasping at straws that ultimately can't hold us up? that maybe they got us through a little bit of a hard time, but they're not letting us flourish. They're kind of keeping us anchored to something that we don't want to be attached to. And we start to notice that, we can start to come back. Come back to the one who can actually handle our losses, Jesus, who can actually get us through those things and let us be resilient. Jesus is a king that lets you face loss and say, I'm okay. I'm still here. Not that we don't grieve these things, but you haven't taken what I have because I have something that can't be touched. Come back to him 
because you don't have to hedge against losses with him. You can suffer them and you can be resilient. He can bring you back. So in the new year, things will come, maybe tragedies, maybe difficulties, but certainly losses and pain. You won't have control at some point, maybe even tomorrow. But whatever may come, you have the power of Christ if you put your faith in him. That's all you do is just put your faith in him, turn from those things to him, And he brings you back, whether in this life or in the life to come. But you don't have to be this frantic person bound up in trying to control a world that's bigger than you. I invite you to come back from all your efforts at control, little by little, piece by piece, that we do this together, that we would be a church even where we can be out of control. Not crazy, not losing our minds, but open-handed to say, yeah, we don't control. We don't know what's going to happen. It's not in our hands. But we don't have to be frantic. That's where anxiety comes in. That's where stress gets the best of us. That's where we manipulate. We get into arguments with each other that aren't constructive. We get heated because we are so tightly wound around something that we feel has to happen instead of saying we're not in control. We're going to do our best, but it's ultimately in the Lord's hands. I want to invite you to come back to this king this year when you face loss. Let him carry it. Let him carry you. So you don't have to try and control the uncontrollable. You were never meant to do that. We were never meant to do that. This is the king of Christmas. This is the king for a new year. Come back to him because he is gentle and lowly and humble in heart. He is willing to take your burdens and to give you his. Let's pray. I'd like to leave a few moments for you to respond in your heart to what God's been saying to you this morning, maybe inviting you to, to thank God that he brings you back from, from having to control your world, maybe confessing the ways that you've been like Herod, that you've been desperate for control, or maybe just asking him to give you a resilience of the resurrection that would bring you back. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are in control, that you are bigger even than our attempts to not be in control at our best efforts. You are ultimately the one who carries us. So we pray that you would be our good shepherd and carry us forever. In your name we pray, amen.